0: All right, good afternoon and welcome to Fireside Mets episode one from Empire Sports Media. I'm Daniel Marcillo here joined by Jimmy Riley. Jimmy, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing all right, Dan. How are you doing?
0: Good, good. So, uh, episode one, obviously, um, we'll just get right into it. Have you watched any of that Korean baseball organization that's going on at one, two, three in the morning?
1: I've I've caught a little bit of it. It's it's definitely an interesting alternative. You know, I've never seen it before. You know, the MLB got postponed, so it's it's definitely keeping me entertained to say the least. How about you? What are your thoughts on it?
0: Well, it's definitely uh, different than any baseball that's going on here in terms of they're more of a contact league. They the pitching you're not seeing anyone throwing ninety five plus. Um, and really, if you look at it, guys who are batting seven and eight in the major leagues, those guys are batting now three. Like, um, I know I've seen Tyler Saladino is one of those guys I was watching last night that's batting third. But, you know, it's better, better than not having anything to watch at all.
1: Yeah. It's definitely better than nothing. That's for sure. Yeah.
0: Um, but again, just tr- go into, uh, what's been going on with the major leagues. Trevor Plouffe, you know, he uh, broke a story or really broke news that MLB is going to return on June 10th with their second spring training. Um, nothing confirmed yet, but what do you think? It might be too early, too late? What do you think uh, in terms of them starting that quickly?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I wanted to come back as soon as possible. But, uh, you know, and, and July still is a ways away. But, you know, that begs the question, are, are fans going to be able to go to these games? Obviously, the MLB wants, you know, fans to go. They want to be still making money. And I, I'm not sure if they, if they don't have any fans there. They're not going to be making, you know, money. I, I, there's a lot of questions still in the air. I'm curious to see how things, uh, you know, proceed moving ahead.
0: Yeah, especially with, you know, some teams like the Marlins, this is actually good for them because they don't really have fans coming in in general, but then you take fans like the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Cubs where a lot of their money comes from, the fans coming in. Yeah, definitely, Definitely is going to be a weird experience because these guys have never played, especially when you're playing in a Big empty stadium like that. It's one thing to play in an empty spring training stadium that only seats five to ten thousand people, but then you go into these huge cavernous baseball fields. It's a completely different story for them.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm thinking back to when uh, the riots were in Baltimore when the Orioles played without any fans, and I'm, I'm thinking they could maybe do something like that. But it's it's definitely interesting to see what they'll do.
0: But yeah, especially with that Baltimore situation, at least the, at least they knew that was only a one-time thing or a couple-game thing, and at least there were fans outside, of the stadium, which also could be another problem for Major League Baseball. Obviously, at Citi Field, you don't have that problem because everything's closed off. Same thing Yankee Stadium, but if you take a field like Baltimore's, where fans have the ability to watch from outside the gates, you know, one of the toughest things is going to be trying to prevent fans from actually doing, doing so and getting that close to the stadium.
1: Yeah. That's, that's, that's a good point.
0: Um, and especially with, you know, it's, it's definitely tough. You know, you look at the Mets situation where they're coming off a year where, you know, first half was bad. Second half, was some of their best baseball of the of the, of the whole entire season especially during that August September run um, and I think you know I think for the Mets this delay actually was something that helps them more than it actually hurt them in terms of getting guys healthy and especially with the team they have. I think this time off is very beneficial for them.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely agree, you know, with uh, with Syndergaard's injury, it definitely gives him more time to recover. So uh, that was a big hit against us. So, you know, at, at the very least, we're getting some time for, for him to kind of recuperate, get his arm, you know, starting to heal up.
0: Yes, Syndergaard, you know, with that Tommy John, you know, we know he's not gonna pitch this year, but at least when you're not playing for a few months, it doesn't feel like you're losing that weight of him in the rotation. Um, and at least now you're not panicking going into sprint and training. You know this happened. And at least the Mets can prepare that now Michael Waka is going to be the five-starter. At least you can have that idea that this this is something you're going into. And plus guys like Batances and, and uh, Conforto, and especially uh, Judd Lowry and Cespedis, who were probably not going to be hitting the field for opening day. Now, at this point, you know, the pressure on both of them to come back, especially as Lowry and Cespedes go into free aging years, the pressure for them to play is immense because they want to play next year. They're not young players anymore, and they've done nothing for the last. For for
1: all of 2019. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, Cespedes hasn't played in in years. He, I'm sure, he wants to get a big contract. And if he doesn't, you know, play anything this year, nobody's going to know how he's, you know, going to be handling himself. I, I don't see him getting a contract after this year if he doesn't play. So, he's definitely got high stakes for him.
0: Yeah, and Cespedes, he's he's an interesting figure because. When Conforto went down early, well, not early in spring training, but towards the end of spring training, the thought was if he was healthy enough, he would give himself a chance to land in the outfield and get some time. But now, you know, it seems like he's the odd man out, especially when you, when Dom Smith, he's going to play some outfield because as much as they want to put him at first base, Alonzo played 151 games where he started at first base, played 161 in total, I think. And, you know, the Mets pretty much have six outfielders for three spots. And I can't see them wanting to take McNeil off at of third base.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think my biggest question going into this next season, whenever it may start, is is Dom Smith. You know, like you said, we have six outfielders for three spots. Um, you know, you're not going to get rid of Alonzo at first to replace with Dom Smith. You know, I think Dom Smith is my biggest question for the new york Mets going ahead you know i don't know if i've heard lots of rumors about him getting traded but you know i i don't want to see him get off the team he's definitely got a good bat um the Mets have tried putting him in the outfield and he's he's definitely struggled but uh i you know i think hopefully he can he can get a spot out there
0: yeah he's he's got a good bat he's great he's great in the clubhouse and every player loves him in there and i think one of the reasons they haven't traded him is one. You have you. The Mets know how their injuries with their outfielders work because you because again Nimo and Conforto have both guys who spent major time on the injured list over the last couple seasons. Mariznick is a good player defensively, but he doesn't have the bat. He's probably got the worst bat of all six guys in that outfield. And again, all you need that left-handed bat off the bench. And at the same time, I think the Mets are looking past the 2020 season, where if they have a DH as early as 2021, Dom Smith is the perfect guy to slide into that position.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. I've, I've been thinking, you know, maybe if we do do the universal DH, yeah, Dom Smith would be a great fit for that.
0: Yeah, and and it's not like he's, a, he's not a good defender either. At first base, he's very solid. And, and remember early in the season when everyone thought Alonzo's glove was basically garbage, that he was replacing Smith. Uh, Smith was replacing Alonzo early in the season, but then as they saw how capable of a defender Alonzo is, they left him alone. And I think in left field, really, he had that spot locked down, but then sort of the injuries piled up. Plus the Mets wanted to get J.D. Davis in the lineup, and then once Smith got injured, It completely became Davis' spot. Yeah. And, you know, looking at Cespedes now, I just wonder how many games the Mets are going to be able to play. Because the weird thing with Cespedes is that if he hits good for three or four games, and he's showing that he's within the first five, six games of the season, and you see a couple good games from Cespedes, it's really hard to keep that guy in the lineup especially with the Mets knowing what he can do when his bat gets hot.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely a a streaky player, you know.
0: Yeah, and especially with – and, I mean, the biggest question, too, is, you know, he's not like Conforto and Nimmo, where they can play both center and a corner position. You know, at this point of his career, he's more of a left fielder. Which really pegs the Mets with three left fielders in Davis, Smith, and Cespedes, um, and it's really an interesting question to see how Luis Rojas balances all of this because he's got he's got a lot of options not just in the outfield but in the infield too.
1: Yeah, no, you're definitely right about that. Um, well, I, yeah, I wanted to get your your thoughts on uh, how do you think the obviously we don't you know we haven't played any games yet, but how do you think? The Mets would be faring if if Beltron were still, you know, the the manager as opposed to Rojas.
0: Well, it's certainly an interesting thing to think about, because despite who, no matter who the manager is, we've seen how analytics and especially in the Mets organization, how certain people up in the in the higher ups want to make decisions in game when they don't really have the knowledge to do so. Um, I think Beltron would have a little more of a hand in making the lineup every day, especially when I think you're Carlos Beltron. I don't think you you know you're a borderline Hall of Famer. I don't think you want to sit around and take your in-game decisions from Brody Van Wagner or Jeff Wilpon at all. I think Luis Rojas is going to have a little more of a leadway, and especially with the stuff going on with Cespedes off the field with him getting injured at his ranch, I think the Wilpons and especially Van Wagner are going to say that they, they obviously want to win, but they prefer all the younger guys to be played over Cespedes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's, especially with, you know, the Wilpons, them potentially selling the team, I mean, that's definitely an interesting move.
0: Well, that, that's just another fiasco. To me, I hate the idea of a Rod and J. Lo buying the team.
1: Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. I, I you know when Steve Cohen were uh when he was gonna buy him, I thought that would have been a, a great move, but you know that, that fell through.
0: Well, it's only it's only it's only like the Mets for them to screw up them. Well, not even screw you. It wasn't it wasn't even their fault. I guess you know we're hearing things about Cohen changing the deal and stuff like that. Um, but to me, you know, I. A-Rod buying the Mets, uh, you know, to me, if he does it, it's going to be much like how Magic Johnson bought the Dodgers where he's the big face that's going to be on the look of the ownership group. But in reality, he's going to have a limited role in sort of the decisions he makes. Yeah, And to me, just talking about A-Rod a little bit, to me, all the stuff he's doing, all this – ESPN stuff, this, you know, Instagram stuff, all the Fox stuff and all, you know, even doing TikToks with Jennifer Lopez. To me, he is trying to reinvent his character so the sports writers and people forget who he was when he played so he can, so people can forget about his steroids, forget about the off-field drama, forget about all the stuff with Derek Jeter so he can get himself into the Hall of Fame. Unlike the other guy, other steroid guys that are still struggling to get the votes to get into the Hall of Fame.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, I I, I feel like you know when you mentioned the uh, the the TikToks and all that stuff, um, I you know I feel like I can't help but thinking, A rods you know, just trying to commercialize a lot of stuff, and I I would hate to see him, you know, ruin the Mets in that way.
0: Yeah, I mean and that's It's that's exactly what it is to me. You know, A Rod. If you look at the other Hall of Fame guys, you know, Barry Bonds, he can't get in. Why? Because, you know, all these steroid guys obviously have the steroids. But Barry Bonds, his reputation hasn't changed. Mark McGuire, he tried to be a hitting coach for a couple of years. His reputation never, never changed from the writers. Kurt Schilling, you know, he. I don't think he ever tested positive, but his other views have prevented him from getting the the right respect from the sports writers. Uh, Rafael Palmero, Sammy Stosta, they fall into the same group. Palmero, one of the few guys to get uh, 500 home runs and bat 300 over his career, but you know he's another guy falling into that territory. And A-Rod wants to separate himself from that group of guys as much as he possibly can because he sees exactly what happened with Derek Jeter. The guy gets almost 100% of the vote. People pretty much adore the guy and he's pretty much everything that A-Rod wants to be.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And, you know, back with the Mets, in terms of look at their pitching staff a little bit, um, a lot of people, you know, they talk about how Edwin Diaz is going to have a bounce back season, um, how the numbers, you know, outside of the ERA and the home runs, everything else in terms of the analytics bounces out. But, I mean, I don't know. I mean, he is still young and he's still got the great stuff, but, you know, it's hard to just have a year like that and say, oh, he's going to become an all-star again next year.
1: Yeah, no, you're definitely right. You know, that's that definitely took a lot of confidence out of him, and that's, you know, a big part of baseball, you know, having the confidence to get up there on that mound and, and pitch well. And last year that definitely shook that off of him, so... It's, it's going to be tougher than just making a couple of minor adjustments and, you know, having that, you know, career year he had in Seattle. I, you know, hopefully he'll, you know, show signs of improvement, but, I, you know, I realistically don't see him getting back to his, you know, his, his Seattle year he had.
0: Yeah, and one of the things you scared about is now he's going from Seattle to New York, and one of the biggest pressures is can he handle New York I mean, one of the, a lot of people are comparing him to Armando Benitez, but Benitez's first year in New York, the guy had a one eight five ERA and saved twenty two games. So I really don't, I really don't know, what the expectations for Diaz should be. Uh, to me, this should be, if he's a closer, the guy gets thirty five saves, he pitches to a what a three two ERA would be, great out of Diaz.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like you said, you know, New York is a a brutal place to play. Um, You know, just from the games I've went to, he's gotten booed by, you know, Mets fans themselves. So it's, you know, it wasn't a good year for him last year, obviously. So hopefully this year will be different, but.
0: Well, uh, yeah, to me, to me watching him pitch last year, a lot of the stuff I saw was he has this electric stuff, but he has absolutely no idea where it's going yeah and to me that's one of the toughest things when I remember there was a couple outings, especially one when in Chicago where I, I think he, I think James McCann was who he hit in the head um, against the White Sox, but he just comes in there. he'll look brilliant for two batters, He'll give up a home run, he'll hit a guy, and then he'll be brilliant for the last guy. So it's very, it's like a, he's a bipolar pitcher, basically. Yeah,
1: he he's definitely very inconsistent. It's you know, it's almost like watching like a little league game when he's on the mound.
0: Yeah, and it's it's just you don't know what you are gonna get. Yeah, in terms of uh, in terms of what Diaz is going out there, because if you if you take er if you take out ERA and if you take out what the er ERA and runs, you know, out of the equation and the home runs. He's pretty much throwing the same way he did last year but it's the matter of giving up the home run ball cuz you know he walked his walk rate was about a one walk per 9 up from last year but the strikeouts remained the same you know the the home runs were the really the biggest jump he went from 5 to 15 yeah so i don't know i mean Again, Luis Rojas has to really figure out everything because with this team, it seems like the pieces are in place for the puzzle. They're all sort of laid out, but there's no there's no specific way on how to configure them.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that.
0: And even the bullpen, I, you know, what the to me the, the, there's a lot of directions this bullpen can go in as well
1: yeah definitely you know when we when we had Syndergaard you know there was talks of you know using walk out of the bullpen and then there was that discussion of of doing like the six starters and you know flipping I think him with mats every uh, couple of games but um you know now they they definitely have have improved their bullpen they definitely have a lot to work with there
0: yeah it's just a matter of finding putting these guys in the right place you know and again I think to me I'll get, I'll get back to we'll get back to Syndergaard later on but to me the biggest question in that bullpen is yes Diaz you know familiar is a little worrisome too but he's not pitching the as biggest as innings as a guy like Dylan Batanzas is gonna pitch where Yankee fans know that Batance is a guy who his velocity is not as high as it usually is in April but then the Work its way out towards the end of the season, but now if you're starting baseball in June, you gotta hope that Betances doesn't take a while to get his velocity, especially when they'll be playing in more of a warmer climate to start the season.
1: Yeah, that's that's definitely right. You know, it's gonna be tough for him to just just jump right into you know what would normally be you know almost mid-season. So you know, hopefully he gets gets onto a hot start and you know pumps it up right from the get-go
0: and especially one of the one of the interesting parts about this bullpen as well is that you look at Diaz, you look at Familia, you look at Batances. All three of those guys have a bunch of movement going on in their motions. You know, Batances has got all arms and legs flying at you. Same thing for Diaz. And then Familia's got that weird motion where he really drives onto that front leg when he throws.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um Speaking of of pitching motions, I saw Strowman. He's now developing a new, almost Kershaw-like leg kick. Uh, he seems to think that's that's gonna help him out a lot. I'm you know I'm curious about your take on that.
0: Well, to me, it's definitely for, uh, when you're a guy who's as in shape as Marcus Strowman, You know, that's also him just showing off how strong his core is. But I think. When you can do something like that, anytime you can throw the hitters' timing off and do it effectively, it works. And always, Diaz has done it in the uh, Diaz. Uh, Strowman has done it in the past, where he does mess with hitters' timing like that. I think now he's even turning it up another notch. Last year, when he was still a Blue Jay, you know him and Marcus Simeon got into it a little bit based on Strowman's little uh, ex- abbreviated leg kicks or his slow pitching him and then quick pitching him. So I think anytime you can mess with guys' timing, I mean, Stroman doesn't throw as hard as DeGrom or Syndergaard, but he's got that hard sinker and very good off-speed stuff. So I think just the more things you can do to mess with the hitter's timing, the more effective it makes you.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: And Stroman, obviously another guy who is going into – in a free agent, not free agent, yeah, free agent year uh, coming up in the off season. You know, what do you think? You know, what are the expectations for Marcus Stroman once everything resumes?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's one of the guys that has the most to prove on the Mets now. You know, he's like you said, he's he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. I'm sure he he, you know, sounds like he hopefully wants to stay in New York. When we first picked him up, it was a bit of a shocker, but he's he's definitely you know, one of these top quality pitchers that I definitely want to keep on the Mets. Um, so I, I think he, he definitely has a lot to prove this year, and I think he's he's definitely setting it up well. So he's, I think I, I think he will prove himself.
0: Yeah, and Stroman, I think one of the things initially with him is that he wanted to be thrusted into a pennant race, you know, and then all of a sudden, he, he sort of cooled off after the first couple of days, and then I think one of the things that really sold him into wanting being here is he came here and he came right in the middle of that um, whole uh, swing where the Mets were getting back into the race and then he came home and made that first home start against the Nationals and he saw how electric that crowd was. You know, I, I was there that night and that was the loudest I've really ever heard that stadium in a regular season game and I think one of the things for Strowman is he feeds off that energy. And I think even with an empty crowd, I think him pitching, him pitching in that environment, even though there's no one there, that's really where you're going to see his personality take over. And he brings that energy that is lacking in the stadium.
1: Yeah, you're definitely right. You know, kind of the opposite of of what we were talking about Diaz before, you know, stroman feeds off of that that positive energy from from new york you know he embraces that new york crowd and i, I think that's where diaz kind of struggles with that you know he, he kind of cracks under the pressure of the new york crowd
0: yeah and you know at that point i think as you say that i think that's something that can help diaz now you're pitching in an empty stadium and you can sort of relax a little bit because we've seen i don't know if you've seen but some of his instagram videos have been of him throwing to you know some guys he finds in Puerto Rico and he's just blowing these guys away with the slider and his fastball and, he, and it's there's no one there it's just a relaxed setting for him and I think it's something he can really get used to and then once the crowd comes in and he's pitching well at this point it's going to be a walk in the park once he's actually going good
1: yeah no I definitely agree yeah I've seen those videos he's, he's definitely looking strong so yeah, like you said, if, he, if we can get started with no fans in the crowd, you know, he should get hopefully started right off the bat.
0: Yeah, and I think um, one of the interesting things in all of this is not just the Mets, but now players, they're not going to have to go on plane rides to play their games. They're not, well, they're going to have to go on plane rides to go in terms of throughout the East Coast. But now you're not talking about a West Coast swing in the middle of you know June, where your body's starting to you know get a little fatigued. You're not talking about playing a Sunday night game but flying to you know Houston to face the Astros. I know that was on their schedule, but I don't know I know they were playing in April. I forgot. when the other part was. But do you think that? Because to me, I think that the bench guys are going to have a significant less of a role because you don't have to worry about i don't say load management but guys aren't going to be as tired as they were now especially you're starting the season late and especially since you're not making a west coast and middle of the country uh trips that like you would be making throughout a longer season
1: yeah no that's a really good point you know like it's it's not going to be as nearly as as taxing on these players as like you said, traveling to Houston and then back to New York the next day—you know—it's they're definitely going to be be more well rested, more prepared for each and every game. You know, that's that's a good point. I don't see them utilizing the bench all that much.
0: And, uh, that that kind of allows us to transition into talking about all of the division, you know, realignment. I mean, what do you think about all the, this division realignment that could possibly be going on once we restart?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was hesitant to uh, to, to support that. I just think that's really messing with something you don't want to mess with. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But, you know, clearly it is broke. You know, we, we should have been playing, you know, six weeks of baseball by now. So we got to do something. Um, but I, I think this is the most realistic solution because like you said if we if we still were gonna go make all these road trips and you know travel to you know la and then back to new york and then to houston i I don't see us playing more than you know 70 80 games so I, i do think that this division realignment will allow us to get you know at least 100 games in this season
0: yeah and to me i look at all three divisions to me the east is the hardest division to play in um I feel bad for the Marlins and the Baltimore Orioles because you've, you're in a division with the Red Sox, the Rays, the Phillies, the Yankees, the Nationals, the Mets, and the Blue Jays. I mean, all of those teams were in position to contend during the 2020 season. Even the Pirates were on the fringe, you know, they're rebuilding, but they still got some good pieces there. But that that's just going to be a – very cutthroat division to me.
1: Yeah, no, the, the East is definitely stacked. Yeah, it's going to be tough for, you know, Baltimore, Miami, you know, those those teams. I don't really have any, any room to, you know, gain some wins against, you know, teams like the Tigers or, you know, other teams like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, to me... Does it make for some interesting baseball? Yeah because the of, I think you have the more, most rivalries you can put together in any division of Red Sox, Yankees, Red Sox Rays, Yankees Rays, Phillies Mets,, uh, Yankees Mets, you know you, you have, they all they all run down pretty well that you can put together some pretty good rivalries uh, throughout the Eastern division.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, it definitely still maintains those uh, those rivalries in the in the regular divisions, you know. So we, we still are going to get to see those games. And now, who knows, maybe new rivalries will start up. That'll be cool. Yeah, and well,
0: I'll just take a look at the rest of the divisions. I really want to look at the West here because one of the things I'm interested to watch is the Dodgers and the Astros being in the same division. Yes. Um, obviously I don't think they've really, uh, I mean, they might've known what was going on before everything broke, but now not only are these two teams potentially going to be in the same division, but they're also good. Both of them are very good. One's coming off the world series. One is coming off of another year where Clayton Kershaw hurt them in the postseason. but you have two really good teams. And to me, I don't see how they're how there isn't going to be ejections and a brawl at some point between these two teams, especially with the manager, Dave Roberts is.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's going to be, that's going to be a series to to watch right there. You know, Bellinger and uh, Correa definitely had some, some strong beef there. I'm curious to see if anything goes down between the two of them. It's definitely going to be something to watch. I'll tell you that.
0: Yeah. They kind of luck out with this division because, you know, they don't have beef with San Francisco, they don't have beef with the Padres, Angels. I mean, obviously there's players on the teams who are very you know, pissed off at the sort of things that were going on in Houston, but they're not gonna get the same heat that the Yankees or, or really um, any other team in baseball that played them in the postseason was gonna give them. And if they, gotta, they get lucky, they might even escape facing the Yankees in the regular season. But to me, if the first time the Yankees and Red Sox play, Yankees and Red Sox, Yankees and Astros plays in the postseason, to me that makes it even more of a hostile environment because this is all building up for them.
1: Yeah, no, you're you're definitely right about that.
0: Um, but we'll go back, we'll talk about a little Noah Syndergaard here. To me, one of the big biggest issues I've had with him pitching over the last couple of years was, to me, he tries to pitch like – I don't want to say Marcus Stroman, but he, he tries to use that sinker to his advantage and get more contact when that really shouldn't be and really wasn't his game when he was coming up through the Mets farm system.
1: Yeah, no, you're definitely right. You know, uh, it, it, he, he is trying to get more contact, more, you know, outs that way. But, you know, he, he's got all the power in the world. I think he could just blow it right by these hitters.
0: Yeah, to me, to me, the breakdown with Cindergard because I was watching some... Of Syndergaard's games from 2015 and 2016, he has that sinker, and to me, there's no problem with having that in your arsenal. But to me, he's got to go back to his bread and butter: his fastball, his curveball, his changeup. You know, I think one of the things he really should think about doing is working with Nolan Ryan as he tries to rehab. Randy Johnson talks about it, Nolan Ryan. Helped him change his career and focus on get the right mindset. Fix a couple minor things that allowed Randy Johnson to just go from some guy who threw hard and didn't know where he was going to, guy who was pretty much dropping the ball in the catcher's mitt whenever he wants to. To me, Syndergaard just got to work at the uh, bread and butter. You know, him and Nolan Ryan are both Texas guys. They're both guys who have pretty similar stuff: that fastball, that changeup, that electric curveball. Along, you know, Syndergaard has a sinker slider which Nolan Ryan didn't have. But to me, he's just got to learn from a guy like that, pitch with that mentality he had in the 2015 World Series. And just go at guys with your fastball, you know. He should be a guy with that stuff, who's putting up up, strikeout numbers that Jacob DeGrom puts up.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, You know, let me ask you something about Syndergaard. Um, do you think this Tommy John will will make him rely on that sinker even more? or do, how do you think he'll you know, like you said, you know maybe working with Nolan Ryan, working with guys like that, hopefully he will go back to that fastball. but do you think after the surgery he'll he'll lean on that sinker even more?
0: I think time um, any time that you go through an injury like that, I think you get a little scared of really pushing yourself too much at the beginning. Especially when you throw your bullpen. Nothing so is as close to pitching until you get in a game. You can't replicate that. So to me, I think Syndergaard going to maybe m- make a little more of a money decision in terms of easing back on the velocity with that. But at the same time, what may be best for him is to just to throw the straight fastball. You know, Or throw that two-seamer that runs right into the batter's hands. And really throw more fastballs, so he's less reliant on his off-speed pitch. Yeah. So it's definitely a tough tough situation for Syndergaard because, to me, he's a guy that should have never been in a position to get Tommy Johnny. He's got all the physical attributes that you want a pitcher to have. He's big, he's strong. And I just think maybe some of his weight training in the offseason, especially with the stress it puts on that elbow is really what did him in in the long run.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Because I think some of his videos really involved him doing too much upper body when at the end of the day, upper body work is not important for a pitcher. It's his core and his legs as we see through Marcus Stroman.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true.
0: Um, So one, one of the other things with Syndergaard is you know, he's going into an arbitration year, which again, really helps the Mets now, especially since he's not pitching. The Mets didn't give him a very low offer, lower than they expected to, which in turn could help them re-sign Marcus Stroman. And we talked about Stroman's free agency in the past, but do you think the Mets should give Stroman the sort of multi-year contract that he's looking for?
1: I I think we should. Um you know, it might be an unpopular opinion now that we, you know, moving ahead, hopefully we'll have Syndergaard, you know, next season. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of pitching, but I, I think Stroman is in the top tier of of pitching in the MLB, and I think having him on our team for, you know, that multi-year deal would, would really establish the Mets as a, a force to be reckoned with, you know, paired with DeGrom, with Syndergaard, you know, even if, if Mats, you know, kind of makes a comeback and has a has a good year these next couple of years, you know, the 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 pitching staff will, will really be, you know, scary. Yeah,
0: and he's, you know, I, I don't think is necessarily an ace, but he's not he's like in that level between a one and a two where he's really he's just a really solid pitcher. And to me you know what the Mets traded for him and Anthony K and Simeon Woods Richardson. To me, you don't trade for Strowman unless you're thinking about signing him to a multi-year deal. Yeah. You know, especially if you didn't sign Wheeler back, which for the Mets, the price Wheeler was asking for was too much anyway. Yeah. So I but I think I think Strowman's definitely a guy you want in your rotation. He's coming into his prime. He's a guy who wants a ball every fifth day. He wants to pitch as often as he can, and he's his passion. Man, you don't you don't find that passion in many guys um, that are as that they will their way through starts the way Strowman does.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, he's got the work ethic you know I've never seen before. You know, he 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 wants to succeed, and you know, he'll do anything in his power to to get the Mets to where they want to be.
0: Yeah, and, you know, obviously he's one of those guys, he's one of those new generation type of players on social media and stuff like that where more of the older heads are not really a fan of all the antics, all the crowd-pleasing that he really does. Um, and then there's the young guys, you know, where we see who love this guy, who love everything he represents on so the mat. He's a 5'9 guy who defies the odds to pitch in the major leagues. Um, and he's – you know, he's a. To me, no matter if you like his antics or not, he, there's no denying he's a guy you can get behind if he's on your team.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: And one of the, and you talked about Steven Matz a little bit. Even him, you know, he's to me he, out of every pitcher in this rotation, for the spot he's in. To me, he's got the most important job in the Mets rotation now.
1: Yeah, that's you know that's a great way of, of putting it. You know, I think I think everybody on on the Mets team can can learn something from uh, Marcus Stroman. You know, even even Degrom, even you know these leaders in the clubhouse, they can definitely you know take something away from from Stroman, whether it be you know a, a skill, a trait, a personality thing, you know, anything to you know push the Mets ahead a little bit. You know, I think Stroman is the guy to to look for. Yeah,
0: and he's going to be the number two now pretty much at this point yeah you got to think after because now really it's like you lost cinder guard and wheeler in free agency now yeah especially that you don't have someone like that but now to me what's interesting is um just a point i thought of in my head what is the mlb going to do about the trade deadline
1: oh yeah that's a that's a good point i didn't even think about that
0: Because you're playing, say you start June 10th your spring training, and then I think the proposed date that Trevor Plouffe reported was July 2nd opening day, which means you have less than a month to make a trade if it stays the same. Yeah. So, to me, in my opinion, they should push it to August 31st as a trade deadline.
1: Yeah, yeah, they got to do something about that. You know, giving them just a month to figure out, you know, their, their whole entire roster, giving them just one month to, you know, get everything to fall in place, that's definitely a a short time frame for them.
0: Yeah, and for the Mets, you know, I don't want to project too much into the future, but to me, I think if they're in it at the trade deadline, I mean, unless you're getting a, a, a Cy Young-caliber performance from Steven Matz, I, I got to think the Mets are going to be in the in the in the hunt for a uh, middle of the rotation or your higher quality starting pitcher especially um going into a series you're going to want you know either someone who's a step between someone between Matt's and Strowman's ability to be your number 3 starter going into the postseason. Yeah, for sure. And and also at the same time, you know, as much as fans wanted to talk about how Porcello, you know, he's, this is the year where he actually pitches well because of his inconsistent on and off years. You still don't know what you're going to get out of Michael Walker. He didn't pitch necessarily well to start the season in the rotation, pitched better in the bullpen that made it back to the rotation. But now your rotation really went from something you can tip your hat or, you know, tip your hat to to now just it's a little bit of a question especially with Matts moving up to the number three spot
1: yeah they uh, yeah they definitely have a lot of stuff to do in the uh, in their starting rotation now
0: yeah, and you know are you are you are you confident in Matt's enough to be the number three starter
1: I mean, I I wish I could say yes. You know, I I like Mats, but you know, he he's been another inconsistent pitcher for the for the Mets. You know, it seems like every other start he's he's doing well, and then the starts in between he you know, kind of just implodes. And you know, for a number three starter, I think he he needs to you know have a, a little bit of a better and more consistent uh, you know, season.
0: Yeah. If you look at Steven Metz and you really, I guess this kind of takes the, this is kind of the way it works for, I think, most of the players on the Mets. You know, when the Mets had Terry Collins as the manager, there was a sort of familiarity with all the pitchers, all the young players coming into the system, because Terry had been in the organization for multiple years. right? He knows how these guys run, he knows what makes them go, what works for them and what doesn't and then we saw Mickey Callaway come in and we sort of saw i don't want to say there's unfamiliarity but you don't feel that camaraderie that you felt with Terry Collins and now with Luis Rojas coming in Rojas worked with pretty much every guy who's been in the Mets system you know outside of the new acquisitions like the tances and um and Cano as well. I mean, Cano even, you got experience with Rojas last year. But now Rojas and especially Jeremy Hefner, who was in the organization when playing with these guys when a lot of them were younger and coming up through the system. So I think those two, that type of familiarity as those two in charge, I think only helps a guy like Steven Matz as well.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good point. You know, like you said, when Terry was here, you know, everybody was, you know, it felt like, you know, like that family you want on a team. And I think now that we have Rojas back, you know, he he's going to be managing. I think I think he definitely has the capability to, to bring that element back to the New York Mets. Yeah,
0: and, and no disrespect to Mickey, Mickey Calloway, but he just wasn't ready for the job. You know, what one of the things I credit him is, you know what, despite all the stuff that went on, he kept it positive most of the time outside of the whole Jason Vargas incident. But to me, it just, to me, it never felt like the players fully looked at him and respected him. The young guys, definitely, because they don't really have a choice. But I don't think Robinson Cano is looking at Mickey, had the respect that, you know, he gave Joe Girardi when he played over there. Yeah. So I think being around a guy like Luis Rojas for as much as he was last season you get the you get the feel you know the respect and when you're bringing a guy like Hensley Mullins as well he's very much respected throughout Major League Baseball and I think you're putting guys in a place where they feel comfortable because again at the end of the day that's all players want today is to feel comfortable yeah um and uh I think when you have all those guys in there, especially with Chili Davis, too, as the hitting coach and Tom Slater as the assistant. The Mets, if you look at their coaching staff, everyone on the team is familiar with these guys now. It's not really anything new for them.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, you know, like you said, you know, the the everybody's, you know, respecting each other now, you know. Not that they weren't when, when Mickey was there, but, you know, coming from, from you know, the sure. pitching staff in Cleveland, I think he was definitely partial to to the pitching staff in New York when he was the, the manager. And I think that was tough to kind of, you know, command a, a whole squad of guys.
0: Yeah. And especially I compare this to what we were talking about, Terry Collins' coaching staff, where these guys were on the staff for from when Terry first got hired to when he finally left the job and after the... 2017 season where guys were familiar you know a couple guys left Bob Guerin went to be the bench coach for the Dodgers but everyone was comfortable with what they had here and I think now you're really building something and they have a good character group of guys too it's not older guys that may not be able to relate to all these younger players the Mets have but you have guys like Hefner and Brian Schneider, who's here, and for the bullpen, Ricky Bonus, who Mets relievers familiar was comfortable working with, and there's a lot of guys here, especially now that they brought the AAA manager Tony DiFrancesco to be the first base coach. There's so much familiarity in this uh, coaching staff now.
1: Yeah, and I think you know that paired with just the amount of of leaders on the on the roster is just you know an incredible tool for the Mets. I mean. You know, you look at guys like, you know, like we were talking about, Stroman, you know, even Alonzo as a rookie. You know, these guys have that clubhouse personality that just really ignites a fire on the team. And I think that paired with, you know, the the familiarity with all, of, like, the coaches, the staff, you know, I think that's what's going to set the Mets apart.
0: Yeah, with this team, I think, I don't think there's ever been a Mets team this close since there is I say, the 86 Mets.
1: Yeah. And
0: I think... Over the last, I mean, 2006 was a close team. But to me, you had more of a different crew of guys. You know, you had all the young guys, right? Reyes doing their thing with Beltran. But it sort of seemed like the pitchers were separate. You know, P.I. with Glavin and Martinez and Orlando Hernandez. But this team, it feels like every guy, you know, hang. They feel like every guy is sort of their best friend with each other on the team. And it seems like... Cano is that older father figure to all these guys because he's one of the old, he's one of the few older guys on the team. You know, we even saw moments last year where, you know, it sort of brings out that younger side of Cano that we don't really see, especially with all the walk off stuff and all the celebration stuff. Yeah. And you need that stuff on a really good team.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're definitely right about that. I, that's, a, that's a great way of thinking about it, You know, bringing out a younger Cano.
0: Yeah, and especially once he got thrusted into that pennant race before he pulled his hamstring in Pittsburgh, we were seeing that MVP caliber hitter start to come out in Cano.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I remember, I, I think it was either that series or the series before. He hit, I think, three homers in one game, and that was... he already doubled what, you know, the three homers he hit, you know, in the whole season before that, you know, so he was definitely starting to come alive once, uh, you know, once all the pieces fell in place.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And we'll finish up here just talking about Cano, you know, what, what is the expectation for Cano this year? I mean, the, the Metro, I don't want to say stuck with him because I think that's a little bit of disrespect, especially if Cano plays well this year, but, what are the expectations for a guy who the Mets are going to have for four more years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's definitely a lot of pressure on on Cano now, uh, especially with, uh, you know, Lowry you know, potentially coming back. I think there's going to be a little bit of a, of a, you know, friendly competition between them, you know, see who gets the this, this starting job. Um, but I, I think Cano can, can really pull through. I think, like we were talking about, he was really heating up at the end of the season last year before he got hurt. And, you know, I think if he can pick up where he left off, you know, we'll see big things from him.
0: Yeah, and I think it, it, Cano is another guy that we could have put into that category of how a shortened season helps him.
1: Yeah, you for know, sure.
0: I think, I think there's still a ton that he wants to still prove because I think he proved a lot coming off of the suspension in 2018 where he still hit 303. But now he's having a full season, I don't want to say clean, but where the steroids are removed from him and he puts up the lowest batting average he ever put up in his career along with other lows that were the lowest of his career. So I think even a 37 to me, I compare him to an Adrian Beltre, Nelson Cruz type of player where they can be very useful, very talented and still an all-star caliber player up pushing 40. And all you have to do is worry about keeping him healthy.
1: Yeah, for sure
0: um and i think Cano is i think the glove is still there obviously he can't move the way same way he did when he was 26 now that he's 30 well 36 heading into his age 37 season but i think i i wouldn't be surprised if you get uh you know i don't say 300 but i say 280 15 home runs with you know with slugging percentage that's over 450. i think cano still has that in him and we were seeing that towards the end of the season as he was getting healthy as well
1: yeah, for sure. Yeah, if I mean, if we get two eighty, even two seventy five, I'm happy with that from Cano.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, I think he's such a huge part because he's an experienced hitter, and to me, he was bad. You bat him in between Alonso and whoever you want to put in that fourth spot, whether it's Conforto or someone else. But to me, I think Cano's got to be a guy who stays in the upper part of the lineup because whether or not people think he's done or not he can still i think he's still a three hitter or a four hitter he's still a top upper in the order hitter and he still i think turn around anyone's fastball or anyone's off speed and i don't think he's he's done yet i think he's still got a lot left especially when he hit 28 doubles um last season which kind of goes overlooked that a guy who struggled so mightily for power still put up uh you know, with 28 doubles. Where if he played a full season, he would have been on pace for 40 doubles again.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's true. That that is a very overlooked stat from Cano. You know, if he can if he can pull out 28 doubles in in his shortened season, you know, I, I think the he definitely has a lot of stuff still left in him.
0: Yeah, and it really would have been 29 if he didn't pull his hamstring on the last um when he hit in Pittsburgh. Yeah, so. All right, so that'll do it for Fireside Mets episode one here on Empire Sports Media. Uh, For Jimmy Riley, I'm Daniel Marcillo. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode and hope you tune in next time.